Uh, last week, we started a series on the servant songs, and uh, servant songs are four uh, poems, basically, that are found in the book of Isaiah. Um, and uh, last week was kind of an introduction, and we looked at uh, uh, a little bit, actually, about a conversation that happens in the book of Acts about one of the servant songs. Um, today, we heard the first of those servant songs from Isaiah 42. Um, last week, I let you know as well who first came up with the idea that there are even things called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And it was a scholar named Bernhard Doom um, who identified them as actually servant poems, but we mistranslated the German as songs. And servant song sounds better than poems, so I guess we stuck with that. Um, and he uh, wrote, some, wrote a commentary in 1922 that identified these particular four things. Now, he actually identified them in a particular way, which we didn't talk about last week. His theory was that actually someone other than the prophet, and indeed someone other than the author of 2nd Isaiah, because these come from what's called 2nd Isaiah, um, whether you think there's multiple authors of the book of Isaiah is kind of immaterial for, for what Doom was talking about. He said someone other than whoever wrote the rest of Isaiah wrote the four servant songs. And an editor then inserted them into the book. This was Bernhard Doom's theory. And this was really at the heart of him identifying these different poems. What he did was he contended that the character of the songs was different than from much of what is found in Second Isaiah. Declaring that they had a different author allowed him to pull the songs out of Isaiah and really interpret them without any reference to the rest of the text. Now, I actually don't think we should do this. As nice as it is to identify, oh, there are these wonderful servant songs that happen in the book of Isaiah, I don't think we should actually do what Bernhard Doom did. Um, even if he is correct, actually, even if he's correct that someone else wrote them, which is seriously disputed now, even if he's right, that means that someone chose to weave them into the Isaiah text and that communities have then gone and accepted these as the prophet's words and, in fact, as God's word. And those communities have accepted that, believed that for centuries and centuries. All of this is to say that, actually, I think the context of the servant songs is really important. So we can't just hear this one bit from Isaiah 42 and then some other bits as we go forward in the series and just look at that and not look at anything else in Isaiah. This becomes really important because Isaiah 42 is not the first use of the imagery of servant in Isaiah. In what's traditionally now called 1st Isaiah, which is chapters 31 through 39, the word servant is always used to refer to either someone specific or to servants in general. So an example is Isaiah 20, verse 3. It says, just as my servant Isaiah has walked in the way of the Lord. So clearly there it's talking, using the word servant to talk about Isaiah himself. Um, and there's other places where someone is given the name, the title servant. Um, Isaiah 37 gives us a good example where we get a phrase that says, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and then they have a conversation. It's just talking about actual servants of a king. 
That's pretty much in those first 30, 39 chapters of Isaiah, that's the only way that the word servant is used. But in 2nd Isaiah, once we get to chapter 40 of Isaiah, it starts getting used in a different way. We get the first instance of Israel itself being identified as the servant. And this happens in Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9, one full chapter before the first servant song. And I just want to read to you what that, those, those short verses from Isaiah 41 say. It says this, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So really clear, saying God is saying, Israel, Jacob, you are my servant. Okay? The motif of Israel and Jacob being the servant actually continues pretty strongly through much of 2nd Isaiah. A servant gets used exclusively to refer to Israel and Jacob from Isaiah 44 to Isaiah 48. That doesn't have any servant songs in it. But it would seem that at least when it comes to the first servant song, we need to ask whether it may in fact be about Israel. This is our first question because the context of 2nd Isaiah demands it. 2nd Isaiah is actually addressed to those Israelites who were in exile from their homeland in Babylon. So Babylon had come and invaded Israel or Judah and carried off many of the Israelites and they were now living in exile in Babylon and that second Isaiah is addressed to them. It begins in chapter 40 with a very powerful image. Some of us might be familiar of it, an image of a highway being made by God through the wilderness. It's a promise of a straight road to lead the exiles home from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So that's chapter 40. Chapter 41 assures the people that they are cared for by God. They are collectively his chosen servant, and God will strengthen them. Isaiah 42, which is, begins with this servant song, uses the same language to talk about the servant that is found in Isaiah 41. The servant is a chosen one. In chapter 41, it was about Israel. Can it still be about Israel in chapter 42? So verse 1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, this can be about Israel if we see the servant as a personification of the nation. And if we believe that God's intention was to bring justice or righteousness to the earth through his chosen people. And there's really strong evidence in the Old Testament to support that the very reason that God had a chosen people in the first place was actually to bless all the other people and to bring about justice and righteousness to the whole world and to do that through his chosen ones. So that seems to be what this servant imagery is about. As you read through the other verses in the servant song, you'll find that all of the words could be applied to Israel collectively. Even when it's using the singular pronoun he, he will not cry or lift up his voice in verse 2. It's a reference to the way God's people would bring about justice or righteousness. It's not going to be through mighty declarations or great speeches, but it'll be quietly presumably through faithful actions. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
Now, we might read that and just gloss over and say, okay, my eyes are gonna gloss over here and uh, I'm not gonna pay much attention to what this is even talking about. What are these reeds and wicks and uh, I don't know. It's actually fairly simple. A bruised reed and a dimly burning wick, that refers to those who are weak. Not a strong reed, not a, not a, a candle that's glowing brightly, but a dimly burning one. It's just talking about those who are weak and how the servant is not going to break them or quench them. In other words, a saying that God's chosen people will not bring forth justice by trampling on the weak. God's justice will come not through the oppression of people. Now we could continue to draw out how this, is gonna, this may refer to Israel, um, but we should also know that this text is not to be seen as referring to actually what Israel did, but rather to the hope of who Israel could be. So you might read this and say, well, I don't know, did Israel actually do that? Did they bring forth justice throughout the entire world? It's not necessarily the question, it's more a question of, is this what the hope was? Is this what they were hoping Israel to be? And I think the answer to that is yes. Now, you might not quite be with me in thinking that the first servant song refers to Israel. That's okay. Perhaps you've been taught that all four of the servant songs have to be about Jesus. We are a Christian church here, right? And we haven't gotten to Jesus yet. We're coming to Jesus, I promise. But first, before we get there, we need to know something a little bit technical. And you've got to stay with me and stay awake. Because I'm going to teach you something a little bit, if you don't know this already, about the Greek translation of the Old Testament. One of the earliest translations of the Old Testament took place over the third to first centuries before Christ. And that version of the Old Testament, along with other books that are actually not part of scripture, is called the Septuagint. Okay, so if you remember that word, the Septuagint is what most of the New Testament writers used when they quoted from the Old Testament. Okay, because the New Testament was written in Greek, so it's easier for the New Testament writers, even though they would have known Hebrew, it's easier for them if they're going to quote from the Old Testament to just use the Greek version that they readily had. Okay? So this is actually kind of important. Now, translations are problematic. All translations of any document are problematic, not just the Bible, because things can be lost in translation, right? Um, and the Septuagint is particularly problematic because it was likely translated from a variant or several variants of the original Hebrew. So in other words, it means that the Septuagint may not have been translated from exactly the same version of the Bible, which became the authoritative version of the Hebrew scriptures, the one that was passed down by scribes, okay? So there's a whole bunch of Hebrew documents. You've gotta imagine there's a whole bunch of Hebrew documents. They've been copied. There's sometimes copying errors that enter in and things like that. And there's sometimes slightly different versions because some scribe one day decided, no, I'm gonna say this differently, okay? The one that became, got, got passed down and is the Old Testament that we have today, the Septuagint wasn't copied from that. It was copied from a variant of that. Okay, so that means that we have sometimes fairly large discrepancies between the Greek version of the Old Testament and the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Now, some really worry about these discrepancies and say, you know, preachers shouldn't tell their congregations that there might be some discrepancies in the Bible. But actually, I think they can give us insight into how the ancients interpreted these texts. 
we actually can get insight into how they understood a text based on the choices they made in translation, right? Because they're making interpretive choices. It's really interesting to see that. And guess what? Isaiah 42 has a big discrepancy. The Septuagint opens like this on Isaiah 42. So remember what the Hebrew said, right? This is though the Septuagint. Jacob is my servant. I will uphold him. Israel is my chosen. My soul has accepted him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth judgment to the nations. See, clearly, someone at some point, very early in the interpretation of Isaiah, wished the, to identify the servant of Isaiah 42 as Israel, just like in the surrounding chapters. And an argument can be made, I think a pretty good one, that the basic understanding before Jesus came on the scene was that this servant song is actually about Israel. And they put it in the Septuagint. It's in the Greek translation. Enter the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels. There are quotes all over the place. And no single book is quoted more than the book of Isaiah. The longest quote in Matthew is found at Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Just as Matthew is reaching the midway point of his story. What does he quote at this important point in the story? He quotes the first four verses of the servant song. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Now Matthew, like most New Testament writers, usually quotes from the Septuagint, word for word, a lot of the time. But this time, he doesn't seem to. Matthew goes back to the original text, removing any hint of this being about Israel. Why does Matthew do this? Why not just use the Greek Septuagint that's lying around? Because Matthew applies the text to Jesus. Now, did Matthew not know that the basic interpretation of this servant song was that it was about Israel? Of course he knew that. But Matthew was doing something magnificent. Matthew was saying that Israel being the chosen servant, Israel establishing justice for all peoples and doing it faithfully without trampling on the already downtrodden, Matthew was saying that all of that is actually fulfilled in Jesus. The servant is Israel personified, yes. And Matthew knows who that person is. It's Jesus. Jesus is Israel personified, is essentially what Matthew is saying. Jesus fulfills God's hope for his chosen people. So does Israel actually do that? Well, yes, they, Israel does it through Jesus, in Jesus. Frederick Dale Bruner has an excellent commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, and I want to share with you some of what Bruner writes about Matthew's use of Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. But I, I just want to give you a bit of the context of the quote in Matthew 12 first. It can easily be supplied by looking at Matthew 12, verses 14 to 17. Just before this, uh, Jesus had, had done a healing on the Sabbath day, which made the Pharisees really mad. They were always really mad if Jesus was doing anything on the Sabbath that seemed like work, including healing people. And after Jesus has uh, done this healing, it says this, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Then we get this. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Well, sounds like a good strategy, actually, right? 
<laughs> Someone's trying to kill me. Aware of this, he withdrew. Uh, a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes on with the quote. Now, Frederick Bruner explains that there are two purposes in Matthew giving the quote from Isaiah. The first one is to give an explanation for why Jesus withdrew and why he gave a command to his followers to keep silent about his identity. And the second one, one, uh, reason is uh, what Bruner calls to give a mid-gospel review of Jesus' entire mission. Bruner points out that withdrawal, when Jesus uh, gets out of there, might sound like a reasonable strategy for us, but is an unusual description for a messiah. He says, messiahs do not ordinarily retreat, but advance. Messiahs do not seek to be hidden, but to be known. And Christian interpreters have made a big deal about this because they made a big deal about the way in which Jesus went about his mission. It isn't just that Jesus is Savior and Lord and Messiah and King. It's vastly important how he is Messiah and Lord, how he is King, how he is Savior. What's interesting to me is that Jesus was attracting these great crowds if he had wanted to lead a political revolution, he could have, quite easily. But this is not his way. The way of Jesus is not to shout about his messiahship. He simply heals people and teaches people. And when the challenge about his identity comes, what does he do? He flees and commands silence to his followers. It's mysterious, because shouldn't we shout from the rooftops that he is Lord? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And yet he tells his followers, no. The answer to this question of whether we should shout out, hey, it's Jesus, the Messiah, everyone, the Lord, he's here. Should we do that? The answer, it seems here, is no. Or at least not until we understand what it really means for Jesus to be Lord and Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king and ruler. But he's that way in the sense of Isaiah's text. He is a servant king. And Jesus' hesitation to claim his rightful title, it guards against our misunderstanding of who he really is. The, the piece in Isaiah about these, these bruised reeds and flickering wicks is actually really important. Because what does Jesus do? He's always paying attention to the least of these and asking us to do the same. We don't always do that well because we tend to follow powerful people who often extend their power at the expense of the weak. Even, sadly, quite often when they claim to be working for the weak, they will extend their power. The church has even done this for years and years, right? We will hold solidly to the truth but we'll sometimes do that at the expense of real people. We somehow stop caring for real people in the name of a truth that we want to cling to. Now, Jesus somehow managed to hold to the truth fully and completely. He managed to challenge the powerful, 
and still managed to never trample on any of the least of these. And how did he do that? Amazing. Amazing that he did that. And it was as if he knew that we needed to see him as servant before we proclaimed him as Lord. So we made all kinds of mistakes of proclaiming Jesus Lord to people and not serving them. Bruner puts all of this quite beautifully, I think. He says this, to be sure, Jesus' failure to shout and scream as revolutionaries and the spirit-filled of all times are wont to do, his failure to work at the great social intersections as contemporary revolutionary and revivalist strategies both advise, and his strange penchant for working with bruised reeds than with polished reeds, with flickering rather than with glowing flames, will still turn people away from Jesus. And then he quotes Matthew 11, verse 6, where Jesus says, but blessed is the person who is not offended by me. Jesus is supremely interested in righteousness, in justice. He works for it, and he ultimately gives his life for righteousness. He gives his life to put us right with God. That is righteousness. But while he gives his own life, notice that he sacrifices no one else's. Isn't that interesting? It's because Jesus is the suffering servant of God. Only when we see him as such can we readily call him Lord. Can we understand that his way of ruling over us is in fact to give himself up for us. When we see this, when we place him as the head of our movement or the head of our body, we are saying that our gain ought never be at the expense of someone else's loss. Except his. Our king died for the least of these. Not just for us, for the least of these. We must see him as servant king. Now, we've addressed the idea of Isaiah's text illuminating the fact that Jesus fled from a fight with his opponents and commanded his followers to keep quiet about his identity. We've kind of talked about that. Um, incidentally, Jesus stays quiet about his identity when he's on trial for his life, doesn't he? So, again, he, he doesn't come out and claim messiahship when couldn't he just command the angels to rescue him? So we've kind of talked about that. But we have not addressed the idea of these few verses from Isaiah providing this summary in the middle of the gospel of Jesus' overall mission. And I just want to take a moment to look at two central aspects of Jesus' life up to that point in the gospel as a key for understanding the overall mission that he's on. And the first is to be found by looking at the very opening of the servant song, where it says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Now, the word servant in Greek can also mean child of all things, possibly even son. Knowing this, we discover that this phrase at the beginning of the servant song is actually echoed in Jesus' baptism. As Jesus comes up out of the water, God's voice declares in Matthew 3, verse 17, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We spoke last week about Lent being a time to reflect on the vows we make in baptism, to think about, our, about renewing our life in Christ, and here we have another connection. God chooses his servant, his son, as God has chosen you, his servant, his child. 
The servant, Christ Jesus, is declared as God's beloved in his baptism, and so too in the servant song. You too are God's beloved child and servant. The second aspect of Jesus' ministry that's pointed to through the servant song is his teaching, and specifically how his teaching is intended to go out throughout the world. In Isaiah 42, verse 4, it's phrased like this, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. But guess what? This gets changed in Matthew. And it gets really changed. Listen to this. This is how Matthew phrases it. And his name, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's a totally different sentence. What's Matthew doing? Where does he get that from? That's nothing like what it says in the servant song. You guessed it. He got it from the Septuagint copied word for word out of Isaiah in the Greek version. So earlier, he followed the Hebrew text. Here, he follows the Greek text. Why? To point us to Jesus, right? To point us to Jesus. When we reflect on this, we find that taking the Hebrew and Greek together, we get an even greater meaning. It's really neat. First, the easy one. The word coastlands, which can also be translated as islands, this gets changed to, say, the Gentiles, okay? Well, it sounds like those are totally different things, but really, the first description is, act is geographical, and the second one is political or ethnic, okay? The geographic description is meant to conjure the idea of those who are far off. We're far away from the coastlands or the islands. Those who are far away, the teaching has to go there. The Septuagint interpreter can insert Gentiles here because they are those who are far off politically, ethnically, and religiously. They are those who are not part of Israel. It actually kind of makes things more clear for Matthew's purposes. He's not wanting to say that there are certain coastlands or islands that might not have heard about Jesus yet, so let's make sure we get to those places. That's not what he's saying. He's wanting to say that all people, even people traditionally considered outside of God's covenant with Israel, can be included now in Jesus. So putting in Gentiles or nations in here is perhaps more accurate for the meaning. Coastlands or islands is more poetic. It's like saying, until every last nook and cranny on earth has heard the message. Right? That's... That's kind of what islands and coastlands is about. Now, the substitution of, of putting in the word name for teaching is much more difficult, right? So the Hebrew text has teaching, and the Septuagint, the Greek text, has in his name they will hope. Now, we can't know why they inserted the word name here. That's really hard to figure out, but in some ways it's a blessing that they did. Uh, looking at the Hebrew that is translated as teaching in most of our English translations, we find that the word is actually Torah. And that can be teaching, but it can also be law. I mean, that's what the first five books of the Bible are called, the Torah, the law. We must also understand what is meant by the Gentiles hoping in Jesus' name, or in his name, the servant's name. It isn't literally the, the name of Jesus, like we're not hoping in a name, it's a way of referring to the person, right? We hope in the name, we're hoping in the person, the person of the servant, the person of Jesus. 
What has happened here, even through translation and interpretation, is that the person of Jesus has taken the place of the law. Isn't that remarkable? That is what Jesus has done. As we look on Jesus' actual teaching that he gives throughout Matthew's gospel and other gospels, we find that while he provides excellent commands that we ought to follow, we should all do what Jesus says, absolutely. But the main thrust of what we learn is in fact about Jesus himself. He is ultimately the content of the teaching. And he is the fulfillment of the ultimate teaching, God's teaching, the law. Jesus fulfills the law, completes the law. This bit of Isaiah, it points to Jesus' entire mission because his mission is one of connecting other people to God. And this was formally done, or previously done, through adherence to the law. So how do you connect with God as an Israelite? You follow the law. Now it can be done in Christ. The new covenant is found in Christ, and it's open to more than just Israel. The servant king's mission is to the least of these, to those who are far off, to the Gentiles of the coastlands and the islands. The mission, it involved obeying his commands. It involves us keeping our vows. But it's more than that. His mission is for us to be connected to him, or as Jesus puts it, to be disciples. And this all comes together at the very end of Matthew's gospel where he sends out his closest followers and commissions them. Listen to what he tells them to do and where he sends them. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. Jesus says to his followers, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. With Jesus firmly in mind, the second half of our servant song, which we haven't even talked about at all today, it comes alive for us. Listen to this and think about Jesus. This is what God says. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring up, I tell you of them. And we should see right away that these verses can apply to both Israel and Christ. The themes of covenant and God's chosen ones being a light to the nations are all over the Old Testament. But we believe those themes reach their climax in Jesus. Martin Luther said that Isaiah's prophecy paints the entire Christ, is what he said. He said Isaiah's prophecy paints the entire Christ. Here we have the great themes that weave together in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Covenant light to the nations, healing, salvation, and freedom, the old life being gone and new things being declared. The early believers saw these connections between their scriptures and the one who had come into their midst, the one who did not rule as anyone else ruled. 
He did not lord it over people. He was a suffering servant and is our king. Amen.